0: Good morning. morning. So good to see you. Love being with our family. And uh, we were driving in this morning, I was saying, I love my church. I love my church family. So when I look at you, I'm so filled with love and and joy. It's good to be with you today. I've told you this before, um, and it's true of me. I love history. I love history shows. I love shows about Alaska for some reason. I don't know why. But I I love history. And, And one of the characters of history that I really appreciate and I think is just a fascinating character, is a guy by the name of Ernest Shackleton. He uh, is a Brit. He was born just before the turn of the century, around 1900, just before that 18, in the 1880s, uh, somewhere around there. And he was always an adventurer. He was always exploring. He, he did uh, unbelievable expeditions and, and hikes on volcanoes and, and places that you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe to the South Pole. But what he's known for most of all is an expedition that he did and he wanted to do to Antarctica. And uh, as you may know some of his story, uh, as you can imagine, that's not a place where you go <laughs> um, and, and be real safe, right? The whole, to get there, you get there by a ship. Well, at that time, the ships were wooden, and so wood against ice doesn't usually end well. And, uh, and so he, you can imagine he had a hard time trying to find the guy's to go with him on that ship. They actually make the journey, and as they're getting to a certain place, the ice winds and breaks apart the ship. Everybody gets off the ship, and they're on the ice, and Shackleton and a few other sailors get in one of the lifeboats, and they head out on a very treacherous, stormy sea, and they have to go 730 miles. Just, I mean, try to wrap your brain around the, the, the difficulty of this survival leaving the rest of his men on the ice to survive. And they have to go 730 miles to find civilization. When they do, they do another expedition back to get the men. And they don't lose one soul until they get back to where that boat came from and then Shackleton himself dies at the age of 48. What's crazy is just last year, his ship, the Endurance, which I love think about the name, right? The ship, the Endurance, was found just last year, I mean, just a little over 100 years from when it sank in Antarctica. What's interesting about this story is there's a myth about how Captain Shackleton got his men to be a part of the expedition. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I probably wouldn't sign up for that, right? He didn't pull any punches. He didn't make it a flowery invitation. He told the truth about what was going to be Uh, the trip was going to be like and how dangerous it would be. And this myth, we don't know if it's true or not, uh, is said that he put an ad in the London paper called The Times. This is what the ad read. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. The reason I thought of this story and and Shackleton is because it's not unlike the invitation that Jesus gives you if you're a follower of Jesus. Shackleton didn't pull any punches, right? He said, this is gonna be dangerous. You probably won't come back. Well, Jesus gives an invitation in our text today in Mark 8, and he pulls no punches. It's not flowery, it's truthful. and is that basically, if you're gonna be a follower of Christ, you're going to be a disciple, then you have to lay down your life. It's just that simple. Let me ask a question this morning for us as we get going. I, just, I want to know what you would say to this, this question. Would you say, I'm a follower of Jesus? If you'd say that, raise your hand. I'm a follower of Jesus. Okay, most of us in here would say that. And I'm so thankful. It's wonderful. But I got to tell you that that question was asked to a lot of people in our country just last year or two years ago in 2021. And 63% of Americans say that they are followers of Jesus. That sounds like a lot to me, right? I mean, 63%, that's that's quite a bit. And so in my mind, and in my heart, I'm thinking, if 63% of Americans follow Jesus, shouldn't, be, shouldn't our nation be different? Why does it seem like our society and culture is tanking? Because if 63% truly follow Jesus, that wouldn't be the case. Am I wrong? So what's the disconnect here? I believe what it is is that number is not right. And the reason the number is not right is because people in that survey and maybe even in this room today don't fully understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So that's what we're going to look at today. Probably the most important text on discipleship in all of the Bible. Very important text. I would ask that you would uh, turn over in your Bibles with me that Mark chapter 8. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It's not just a belief, right? James chapter 2 says that the demons believe and shudder. So that's not it. It's not just belief. It's not just going to church occasionally. So what is it? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And I'm so grateful that Jesus himself defines this for us. Jesus today is going to define discipleship for us. Here's what I would, I would just humbly ask all of us to do, seriously. As we look at God's word today, would you take a deep look in the mirror of your soul, of your life, of your heart, and, and, and put it up against the filter of what Jesus says is discipleship? Does your life align with his definition instead of your definition Because his is the one that matters, right? Let's look and see what he says. Mark 8, verse 34. Mark says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Pray with me this morning. Father God, thank you for this text. Thank you for your word. Thank you for clarity, Lord. <laughs> Thank you, Father, for the privilege, God, that you can help us understand what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus because in so many ways what has happened is we have tried to define it for ourselves. We think well, what we're doing here, this, that's good enough. And I'm just so grateful, Lord, you have clearly defined what your expectation of a follower of Jesus is today in our text. God, I pray that you'd help us By your spirit, lead us to all truth. Give us the courage to be obedient and follow you. And help us to see, Lord, that we have to die in order to live in you. With all my heart, God, I pray that I would decrease in this time and you would increase for your glory. That we would grow closer to you, Lord. And be the disciples you're calling us to be. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I want to give a little context. You might remember last Sunday, uh, this text today is kind of like the the third part, if you will, of last Sunday's text. We did kind of the first couple of sections last Sunday. This is the third section that I reserved for today. Last Sunday, you might remember that Jesus and the disciples, the 12, they're on their way from Bethsaida to uh, Caesarea Philippi, right? 25 to 30 mile journey. Um, pagan area, and Jesus asked two questions. He says, Who do they say that I am? And who he's speaking of are all the people that are following him, all the, all the word out there. Right? He's fed the 5,000, he's fed the, the 4,000, which was really probably more like 10 to 15,000 each. They've been healing people, Jesus is healing people. I mean, word's getting out. And so Jesus says, Who do they say that I am? And their answer is, Some people think you're John the Baptist resurrected, some people think you're Elijah. Others think you're Jeremiah, some other prophet. And Jesus looks him in the eyes and he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? I understand that's what they're saying. Who do you say I am? And Peter steps up, you're the Christ. And of course, you know, we see in, in Matthew's gospel, we didn't get into this too much last week, but in Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus affirms this and he says, You you know, human, um, you didn't get this from human intelligence or knowledge. This has been revealed to you by our Father in heaven. And then he says this incredible statement, upon this rock I will build my church, right? Now he, let me just clarify something. He's not talking about Peter. God does not build his church on a human being, a fall fallen, (laughs) right, sinful human being, (laughs) what he's speaking of is the statement that Peter makes when Peter said, you are the Christ. So again, this is a big, this is kind of a big statement because like the Catholic Church builds their whole theology on Peter as the rock. He is not the rock, right? Jesus is the rock. And the confession that Jesus is Messiah is what the church is built on and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. That is what Jesus is saying. And so he said this, Peter has made that statement. Well, then Jesus begins to define what Messiah's mission is, what his role is, right? And Jesus says, well, here's what Messiah has come to do. Here's what the Son of Man's come to do. He's going to suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. But arise again. Peter, remember, he doesn't like the, the mission of Messiah. <laughs> he doesn't like that idea. Because, and you might remember, everybody thought that Messiah was going to take over the Roman occupation in Israel. That's what they thought Messiah would do. And they're seeing Jesus heal and do all these amazing things. Calm the wind and the waves. And if he can be over the wind and the waves, surely he can be over the Romans. And so we're going to make Jesus king of Israel. You're not going to die. And what does Peter do? He takes Jesus aside Loses his mind for a moment, takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, no, Lord. And then he gets a greater rebuke from Jesus, and Jesus says, Satan, get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me, right? He says, you're thinking of the things of man instead of the things of God. I I said all that and, and brought that back to your mind because that's the moment we're in. That's the context of where we're at right now. So it's this awkward moment where Jesus is just called Peter, Satan. And you get this kind of like all the disciples, like just a little backing up. Awkward. Tension. And then Jesus pulls back a little bit from the 12. And again, remember, people are following them. When they get on a boat to go somewhere, people get in a boat to go with them. When they walk on on the land, people are following them. Who knows how many? But in this moment, Jesus takes his attention off the 12, backs up to the larger group and says, come here, come here, come here. That is the context of our scripture this morning. And I wanted to kind of bring you up to speed on that. What I love about our text, it starts off like this. If anyone would come after me. First thing I want to say is... (laughs) Jesus loves all people. Here he is in an area that is a pagan area. He's speaking to Gentiles and Jews. And what he says is, if anyone would be my disciple, it, it doesn't. I mean, he's no respecter of persons, of race, of faith background, of where you've been or what you've done or what you've believed. What he says now is, just follow me. I'm gonna give you the recipe for discipleship and anyone can follow me, isn't that beautiful? Now, most Jewish rabbis would be very exclusive. They wouldn't wanna speak this message to a Gentile, but not Jesus. Revelation tells us that in the future in heaven, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, right? Culture, race, will all stand together around the throne and worship this Jesus. And so we see his heart going, anyone, come on, anyone who wants to follow me, come on. And I say it to you this morning. No matter where you've been or what religion you've grown up with or not, no matter who you are, you can follow Jesus today. So then he begins to lay out the specifics of discipleship. I want to go through these. There's four things I want us to look at. This is the main text that we're going to really dig into today. Verse 34, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. There's four aspects of this sentence. First of all, come after me. Here's the thing you need to know about following Jesus if you didn't. You cannot follow Jesus and stay where you are. It cannot be done. You have to move. You have to change. You have to leave some people and some things to follow Jesus. Right? You have to be intentional You have to be active, and you have to submit your life to this journey. You have to be willing to go, okay, we're going. I'm moving towards the Lord. I'm moving towards obedience. I'm going. And how many of us just prayed some prayer? We formed some words in our mouth, and we never went anywhere. We never changed anything. We have to come after Jesus. Number two, we have to deny ourselves. Life is not about you or me anymore when we follow Jesus. It's about Him. You're no longer the main character. You're the supporting character. I've mentioned this before and it's so true and I'll I'll say it again. It took me a few years to wrap my brain around this because I felt so strongly that God had given me a vision for my life, a vision for my ministry, a vision for what I was to do and work and and so I, I, I studied things. And I put all my money and all my effort into a direction that I felt like I was supposed to go until I came to the conclusion that life's not about me. It's about him. That my life is to support this story of Jesus and he's the main character. Can I just say it gets a lot easier when you finally realize you're not the main character. And you can step back and say, Lord, how do you wanna use me? How do I support what you're wanting to do? Instead of Lord, How come it's not working out for me, right? The Greek word for deny here literally means to have no association with, to disown completely. That's talking about denying yourself. (laughs) No association with, right, to disown completely. And that even speaks of how we are saved. Often we think we've been pretty good people. Never killed anybody. I know Jesus because I'm a pretty good person. No, denying yourself also has to do with our faith. We have to lay down our self-righteousness, our sinfulness, everything to follow Jesus. John MacArthur, I love this quote, he says, grace is not extended to those who think they are well, but to those who know they are sick. Not to those who think they're okay, yeah, I guess I'm good. No, you have to know that you're sick. He says, it was not the self-assured Pharisee who Jesus declared to be righteous, but the undeserving and self-confessed, unworthy sinner who cried out for mercy. See, denying yourself isn't just about saying no to what you want. I'm going to deny myself. You know, right now is the season of Lent. I appreciate Lent. It's a good thing to do to, to, to say no to a few things. And maybe even add some things. Hey, you know I'm not going to have sugar for 40 days. Oh, that's good. I'm going to be off Facebook for 40 days. I'm going I'm to be off TV. for Those things are good. But when Jesus says to deny yourself, it's a little deeper. <laughs> it's to completely deny ourselves. i to give you an example of it. Paul in Philippians 3, verse 8 says this. What a picture of self-denial. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord. He goes further to to explain what he means. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This word rubbish, right, can be translated differently. Some of your translations may say trash. Some of your translations say dung, and you can go further with the alliteration of that, right? Are we clear on what Paul thinks of the stuff in life? compared to Jesus, he says it's nothing. I'm so self-denied that everything in my life is as dung, as trash, it is nothing compared to the great surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus. Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, the, the thing about Jesus and his ministry as he healed people, as people were following him and doing some different things. There was sort of a celebrity status with Jesus. People wanted to be around him. People wanted to have positions with him. Uh, people wanted to follow in some, in some sort of a way. And there's this kind of a sad story, in a way, uh, in Matthew 20, where James and John's mother, it's like the only time I, maybe I know of that she's mentioned in Scripture, um, and she comes before Jesus and she, go, she gets on her knees and she says, Lord, please let my sons, James and John, be at your left hand and your right hand when you become king. Now, is she talking about his kingdom in heaven? No. She's talking about when we make you king of Israel and we overthrow the Romans. That was the prevailing idea of who Messiah would be and what would be done. She she wanted position for her sons. She wanted them to be connected to the celebrity of Jesus. Jesus' response to her is, you don't know what you're asking. My translation of that is, you're out of your mind. You have no clue, lady. He says, are you going to drink the cup that I have to drink? Are you going to suffer the things that I have to suffer? And evidently James and John aren't far behind because they go, "Yeah, yeah, we will you just get the sense of really they don't know they don't understand what it means to deny yourself there's another story or two here Matthew 18 uh, 818 I'm sorry it says now when Jesus saw a crowd around him he gave orders to go to the other side and a scribe came up and said to him teacher I will follow you wherever you go that sounds pretty committed Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Cricket? Cricket? Right? We see no response here. Verse 21, another of the disciples, which just means one of the people that were following him, this is not one of the 12. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. See, this is a lesson about discipleship and idols. Because it's it's one thing to be inspired by Jesus. It's one thing to be moved by what he does. And it's another to let him be Lord of all in your life. One man has the idol of comfort. When Jesus said, yeah, come on, man, awesome. By the way, we got no place to stay. Foxes got holes, birds have nests. We got nothing. We good? See, Jesus... Knew his idol of comfort. And he spoke to it, and the man goes away. Right? And then the next man, he comes up to him, let me, let me go bury my father. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus wasn't being insensitive. That was a common phrase uh, in, that, in that time period to say, I-, I need to wait to get my father's business. I got to wait to take care of my family. I, gotta wait. I got to wait. He had an idol of family. He wasn't willing to say no to everything, to make Jesus Lord of all. And so the story is that both of these men back away from what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus. Don't just be inspired by Jesus. Make him Lord of all. Another story of a a young man. We call him the rich young ruler. Each gospel gives him one of those descriptions, rich, young, and ruler. Jesus sees this young man. He comes up to him, has an entourage, and he tells Jesus, Lord, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus explains to him a few commandments. He goes, yeah, I've kept those. And Jesus says, okay. He sees the man's heart. He narrows in on his idol, right? And he says, okay, then go and sell all that you have and come follow me. It's such a sad story because it says that the young man goes away. He walks away from Jesus exceedingly sad. Sad. Jesus revealed the idol in his life. And sadly, the reality is that he walks away. He keeps his earthly treasure, right? But he loses his eternal soul. There's a difference. Don't let discipleship just be an inspiration. I want to follow this guy. I like this. Because he will narrow in. He will zero in on the idol in your life and say, you're going to follow that or you're going to follow me? Is Jesus Lord of all, and then he says, take up your cross. Now the cross is something that people in this area would be very familiar with. It's, it's said that Jesus, in Jesus' lifetime alone, that there would have been about 30,000 crucifixions. So crucifixion is very well known. Very, very it's been seen on the roadways, I mean all over the place. And so for uh, Jesus to say, take up your cross, they knew exactly what he was saying. Come and die. Take up this instrument of death. I like the fact that Matthew, in his gospel, in this text, he says, take up your cross daily, right? He adds the fact that we have to die daily, every single day. Why? Because every single day when we wake up, our flesh is going to constantly seek to live Our flesh is gonna constantly seek to take control and the enemy will use our sinfulness in the same way that he used Peter's, right? And Peter was thinking of the things of man instead of the things of God. Guess what you'll do every day? Think of the things of man instead of the things of God and so we have to die to ourselves. We have to take up our cross and die. Paul explains it in Romans 12 as a living sacrifice. He says, this is your reasonable act of worship that you be a living sacrifice. What does that mean? That you lay down your life, you attach yourself to the cross and say, I'm dead. Drew no longer exists. Every day, Drew no longer exists. I'm dead. Christ lives in me. And I'm gonna live with the sacrifice of my life, lived for Christ. Paul put it this way so beautifully in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, Paul no longer lives. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't exist. I'm dead. Now Jesus lives in me. And all that matters is Jesus and what he wants for me. He goes on in in 614. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul lived daily saying, i got to take up my cross. i got to die to myself. Jesus in my life is all that matters. You know the thing that's interesting is, is death. Death is an interesting thing. We don't like to talk about it. We sure don't like to deal with it. We lose a loved one, we lose a friend, and we have to deal with it. We go to funerals, we have to hear about it. And what's interesting is here when Jesus is explaining the mission of Messiah, and he says he's going to have to suffer and be rejected and die, all of a sudden he brought up the issue of death. And what does Peter do? Oh no, 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 no. We're not talking about this. No, Lord. Friends, you have to deal with the issue of your spiritual death right now if you're going to follow Jesus what does it mean for you to die to yourself to die to your agenda to die to your plans to die to your priorities we have to surrender all that we have and all that we are to Jesus if we're going to be a follower of Christ if we're going to be a true disciple of his we have to die and then he says follow me follow his words follow his ways, follow his lead by the Holy Spirit. What we call this is a Christian worldview. This is is where we say, okay, everything in my life, everything I try to think, everything I put in my mind, everything I read, I I, I want everything I do, I wanna filter through what it means that Jesus is Lord of all in my life. Every single thing I watch, everything I say, how I raise my kids, how I spend my money, I want it all, everything. To honor Jesus. Even what you do for a living, as I was saying a minute ago, you know, our job, especially for men, we, that's our identity. This is who we are, right? You, you meet somebody new, Drew, how you doing? What do you do? That's our second question. Our identity is wrapped up in what we do and, and the job that we have. Guess what? That job is secondary to your primary job as a follower of Jesus, which is to know Christ and make him known. God's called you to love people and love God and be an authentic disciple who makes disciples. That's your primary job and by God's grace, your secondary job helps fund your real job, right? That's what a follower of Christ does. So Jesus here defines discipleship and I'm so grateful for the clarity he gives us. As we look in the mirror, Lord, is that me? Am I that serious about you? Are you truly Lord of my life? Do I live by your word? Jesus here in his kindness is going to continue to explain this concept. So 34 is the most important verse, I think. But then the rest of the text, the other four verses I want to go through quickly, just because they give us more context of what he's trying to say, okay? The first one, he uses these examples, metaphors, and the first one is what's called a paradox, Let me give you the definition of a paradox because it's interesting. It says, a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement. This seems crazy. Or a proposition that when it's investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. It seems crazy at first, but it's actually true, right? That's a paradox. Jesus gives us one in verse 35 when he says, for whoever would save his life, We'll lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. That's the paradox. Then he explains, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What Jesus is saying is our tendency as human beings is to try and take control. When we want to survive, we got to take control. So what does that mean as a human being without Christ? i got to make as much money as I can make. i got to have as much approval from people as I can have i got to do all the things that everybody else does. And we just flail around doing the things. Not caring about a relationship with Jesus. I've got a next-door neighbor who is a brilliant internal medicine doctor. He doesn't know how to swim. And so one day our families were at the pool together, our neighborhood pool, and he said, hey, would you help me learn how to swim? I was like, oh, okay, sure. And I kind of hold his hand. We kind of inch out to the Sort of deep in, not really, but almost, you know. I said, I just want you to get where you can just barely touch. Goes, okay, okay. And he gets over there. And then all of a sudden, he loses his mind when his feet can't touch. Brilliant doctor goes out the window and survival comes into play. And he's bees, ah, and he's kicking. And I'm th- I think I'm going to drown. See, the paradox is, and I told him, I said, whoa, 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 bring him back to where he can touch. Here's the paradox. To swim is not to lose control. It's just to slowly push the water out of the way. But your mind says, freak out. Freak out, save yourself. But saving yourself is going to seem counterintuitive. This is what Jesus is saying about salvation, about life, about following him. you got to die to yourself and live for the gospel. Right? If you would save his life, he would lose it. To really save your life, you got to lose it. But if you, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I saw a story with Deion Sanders, a great football player and now pretty great coach, speaking to some of his players the other day. And he said something along the lines of, guys, all the money in the world, you can have all the money in the world for a living and not have a life. All the women in the world. You can have all the women in the world and not have a relationship. You can have the biggest house in the world and not have a home. He was saying the same thing. Jesus is trying to say, when you're saving yourself and you're doing all the things that seem to make sense in your human mind, you're actually going to lose your life in this life and the next. But if you'll lay down your life and say, Lord, I want to die to myself, and trust you, follow you, take up your cross, deny myself, that's actually when you find the good stuff. Jesus said in John ten ten, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life, and life more abundantly. Do you want the best life you can have? Do you want to be full of joy? Then live the way God says to live. Surrender your life, and you will have true abundance. Life And he actually closes this out sort of with the hyperbolic statement when he says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? But let me ask this, what if you were king of the world? I'm king of the world, right? I have all the money, I've got all, everything, I've got it all. And yet still lose your soul and go to hell, what good was it, what good was the money? What good was the fame? What good was the power? What good was the influence or approval from someone else? If you don't have a soul that knows Jesus, it makes no sense that you would spend all of your life and all of your effort and all of your passion on things that accumulate and don't matter instead of a life in Jesus and it's all that matters. What good does it do to gain everything, the whole world, and lose what matters most, your soul? And so then Jesus says, Let's talk about the value of a soul for a moment. Verse 37, what can a man give in return for his soul? I I don't know about you, but when I read that after the consideration of the man who gains the whole world, this this is a terrifying image to me. Because the image I have is, you play it out, right? The man gained the whole world and lost his soul. And so in my mind, I have this image of this man in hell. And I think about the story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that? And Jesus says, uh, or the the rich man says, if if somebody would just put a drop of water on my tongue, please, if if somebody would please go to my family and, and tell them the gospel, tell them the truth, and the reality is it's too late. It's too late. What do you think that man would give in return for his soul? It's a terrifying image. Can I just tell you, your soul has infinite value to God. Your soul means everything to God. It means in fact so much that he sent his one and only son on your behalf and on my behalf to hang on a cruel cross and die. To take your sin on himself And not even be able to have an image of a man. He wouldn't even look like a man because sin on him warped his whole image, his whole body. He was so beaten and bruised and wounded for our transgressions. That's how much God values your soul. And he's given you another opportunity today. (laughs) Another moment of grace to say, yes, God. I hear what's being said. I hear this truth of your word and you have, if you don't know Jesus as your savior maybe you've wandered in with a friend maybe you've been in this church or another church all your life it doesn't matter what matters right now is do you believe in Jesus Christ with all of your heart is he the lord of your life that's what matters most God in his grace has given us another moment for you to say yes to Jesus so my question is what is your value of your soul What's the value you place on your soul? Because if you live without Jesus, if you live without a care of his ways and his word and his people, you're not putting a lot of value on your soul. It's only when we die to ourselves and we know him and we live in his way and his words that we value the thing that matters most. And then lastly, I want to close. Jesus tells us about his punishment for not valuing our soul, for not valuing the gift of salvation of Jesus on the cross. When we don't value that and we live for ourselves, we try to save ourselves, look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, you and I were created for relationship with God. That, that's why you were born. That's why you live. When we ignore that, when we dismiss that, when we uh, mock that, we live for ourselves, we act as if we don't care about anything that God has done or, or says, don't be surprised at the judgment that God ignores you as you've ignored him in this life. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you at the judgment. So he says, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of my words. We have to acknowledge both Messiah and the message. Jesus and his word. Not just the red letters, right? Not just the words Jesus said. The Bible says Jesus is the word made flesh. He is the word. All of the word. All of God's word we have to respect. And it just seems to me in our culture, in our society, God's word is under attack, isn't it? Everywhere I look, there's another progressive Christian saying it doesn't really mean that. It's meant that for the prevailing church for 2,000 years, but all of a sudden it doesn't mean that. The scripture, we, we don't count that one. God's word is under attack. What do you believe about God's word? Do you understand that it's truth, given, inspired, infallible? Don't diminish Jesus or his word. And then he says, he mentions this adulterous and sinful generation. He's not just talking about people and adultery here, right? He's talking about the fact that the Pharisees and other uh, Jewish leaders, they have begun to follow their own rules, right? God has given the rules, the, the law, and they've added thousands of laws upon God's laws, and they start following their laws instead of God's laws. What he's saying is, They've left their first love. They are an adulterous and sinful generation. They've left a love for God and they love themselves. They love what they want. They love what they think is important. And don't we do the same thing? I'm okay. I I I never killed anybody. Sure, I'm a follower of Jesus. I go to church occasionally. Sure. Can I just tell you something? Even for those of us who've been in the church and been around the church for a long time, We need to be careful that we know Jesus as our Savior, not just that we do things for Jesus. Another terrifying scripture, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Friends, good works don't save us, right? We know that. Doing things doesn't save us. But when you're saved and you know Jesus, you want to do good things. There's a difference. When you know Christ, you want to live in such a way that honors him. You want to be obedient to him. And so the question for us this morning as we close is this. What does this look like? How do I know? I've done some things for the church. I've I've done this. I've led here here and there. I don't want to get to heaven and go or or to the judgment and, and the Lord say, I never knew you. So what's our test today? How do you leave here? No. I'm a child of God. I'm a follower. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Look with me in 1 John 2 verse 3. It says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. We can know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. 1 John 3, 34, whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. MacArthur again makes it clear when he says those who live in obedience to Christ, they demonstrate that they are truly his disciples. Conversely, those who persist in unrepentant sin over and over, they give evidence that they do not belong to him which are you? First John 3, 6 says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Friends, if we know Jesus, we will be an obedient people. A verse that changed my life Several, John 14, 15, John 15, 21, John 15, 14. Jesus says, If you love me, obey my commands. Because I could sing all day, Oh, I love you, Lord, right? Oh, I love it. I love you, Lord. I could form those words with my mouth and I could walk away and dishonor Jesus with my life continually. God is not concerned as much with your words as he is with your life and your obedience. Is your life characterized by obedience and surrender to Jesus? Are you focused on you, your plans, your future, your sin? Because listen, friend, if all you did was form some words to make a prayer and you didn't believe in your heart and you haven't been transformed, your life is not transformed, you stayed there and Jesus went on and you didn't follow him, you probably don't know Jesus as your Savior. No matter how long you've been in the church, friend, look in the mirror and say, Lord, am I a disciple? What does it mean? Because I think the true posture of a disciple of Jesus is not ashamed of Jesus. Instead, you're ashamed of the sin in your life. Instead, you come before the cross going, Lord, I'm sorry. I see my wrong. I see the brokenness of my sin. I see the wrong things in my mind, in my life. I'm ashamed. That's what a believer, that's what a follower of Jesus, that's what we do. We come after him. We move. We're intentional to go with him, whatever it means, Lord. We deny ourselves. We're not the center of life. He is. We die to ourselves. We take up our cross and say, Lord, I'm going to look at everything in my life through the lens of who you are and the fact that I'm a dead man. And you live through me. A Christian worldview and, Lord, I'm going to follow you every single day of my life. I'm going to have to get up every day and be reminded I'm a mess. I'm going to have to get up every day and go, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry I haven't failed you again. And I'm so grateful for the cross of Jesus that covers everyone. And I die again today. I die again today, Lord, so that you might live Through me. And we have to follow Jesus with every single thing we do. Filtering what we do, who we are, through who he is and who we are in him. Last last thing, we're gonna go just tell you about these two stories. We won't read them. Jesus tells these two stories, parables. One's in Luke twelve, it's about a rich man, he's a farmer. And he says, The farmer has been very successful, he's got a lot of crops. And the crop, he's got so many crops, in fact, that he has to build new barns to hold all his crops. And he's done really, really well. He says to himself, the text says, that he says to himself, you have ample goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I did it. Look what I got. Look what I've worked for. I'm enough. The text says that the Lord says to him, You're a fool. This night, your soul is required of you. And the man had a lot of things in this life, and he had nothing in the next. Tells another story in Matthew 13. 44, one one verse. It says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Friends, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple, is that when you find Jesus, nothing else matters. I'll sell the rest so that I can have him. I just want Jesus. That's what a disciple is. For so long, the church has thought that Jesus was just sort of a hat you put on on Sundays. Let's go be like Jesus today. Let's go do church today. Let's do Christianity today. I better not take that today. I better not look at that today. It's Sunday. If you know Jesus, he has every moment of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of your life. If you're a follower of Christ, you've died. And you're allowing Christ to live through your life. Friends, I share this with you this morning passionately because... Matthew 7 scares me. I don't want one of you to walk out of those doors and not know Jesus as your Savior. I don't want you to. I don't want you to die and go to hell. I want you to know the the Lord. I want you to see the joy and the life that He wants to give you, the abundant life of Jesus. And so if your heart is beating a little faster now, if maybe you're thinking, I don't know that I know God. I don't know that I am saved. Just come pray. Come seek the Lord, let me help you, let me pray with you. Let's find out where you are. Humble yourself. Don't worry about what people think. Come before the Lord. Lord, I'm ashamed of my sin and I need you. I need salvation. Would you do that today? Maybe you've never made that decision. Come to Jesus today, would you? He's calling us to come and die, believers, so that we can truly live in Christ. Are you a follower of Jesus? Pray with me. Lord God, I'm so unworthy, Lord. I'm so unworthy to preach this message, to speak this truth, and yet for some reason, Lord, you've called me to do it. I don't do it, Father, in some self-righteous heart. I do it as a sinner who knows I don't deserve you, Jesus. God, if there's any person here, when they look in the mirror, they see an unworthy sinner like me and they've never trusted you to save them, God, would you draw them now by the power of your Holy Spirit and save their soul? God, if there's a believer here that has thought for a long time that to to be a disciple just means to have a good church attendance, God, would you rework in their hearts the truth of what it means to be a disciple, that we come and we die And everything has to be filtered through who we are in you. And you live through us. God, if that's the case, whatever the case may be, in every soul in this room, we surrender to you. Forgive us. Change us. Draw us. We surrender to you. Be Lord of all, God, of my life. Be Lord of all of our church. God, be Lord of all of every city group leader and every city group member of every partner of South City Church. Be Lord of all. Help us to be true disciples. God, help us and draw us now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if if God's working in your heart and you need to come to this altar, would you do so? Just begin to come even now. We're going to sing, but just come. Just lay your heart down before the the Lord. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. His arms are wide open for those who would humble themselves and come before him in need of a Savior. Would you come?